Well, it's no surprise to hear this, but the world around us is ever-changing. It's always changing. The only difference between today and maybe a century ago is perhaps the rate at which the world is changing. Because of avenues like Twitter and Vero, anyone can instantly communicate with someone as close as the next house over or as far away as the next continent over. We've grown so accustomed to the rapid pace of change that is hardly recognizable nowadays. The first phone call that was made in 1867 forever changed the time it took for a message to travel long distances, much like Morse code did before that and the Pony Express did before that. The church is also changing at a fairly rapid pace. It seems like only a generation ago that the church was the social hub of nearly every small and medium-sized town. And that's the case no longer. Just one example of this is when we come to church, it's often the only time we see most of these people here. Some of you drive past 20 dead churches to get to one that's alive. And what this means is that there will be a lot of time given to playing catch-up, you know, socially before or after worship. It's kind of a neutral change. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just a significant difference from times past. One other change that's not so much a change as it might be a reversal. We're seeing people leave the church who thought that the church was the way of gaining what you might call social capital. Or, since everyone goes to church, I'd better go as well or I'll stand out like a sore thumb. Only in the last century has it become socially possible for someone to say they were unreligious in America. People didn't have a category for anyone who said that they were an atheist. But people are, and always will be, spiritual beings. Even today, an organization called the Pew Research Center, it's just an organization that uh, studies and tracks religious trends in America, they found that while 9% of people might not believe in any kind of supernatural, divine, omnipotent, universal being, only 3% are actually willing to say so in public. That's a big change from even 50 years ago, where if you asked somebody if they believed in God, the answer was universally in America, yes. I say those things just to say that while the religious landscape is shifting, people are still deeply religious, spiritual beings. How it looks is just changing. We always have been this way. When the church was only a small plant, it was rooted in a society that prided themselves on being spiritual, on being religious, but not Christian. The Roman world had many gods, we all know this. They all, they all had their own places of worship. You prayed to different gods for different things. You made sacrifices. The Romans were deeply spiritual people. We find ourselves in a very similar culture to the early church today in America. People are very interested in spiritual things, even those who deny any kind of knowable, doctrinal kind of faith with parameters and boundaries. But while people are interested in spiritual things, they would rather not engage in a kind of spirituality that really requires much of them. Spirituality is supposed to soothe you. Spirituality 
It's supposed to teach you how to be a good person. It's supposed to make you feel better about your existence. It's supposed to fill in the blank with whatever you want. While the world and the church are changing more rapidly than maybe at any point in history, some things never change. We still want to be spiritual people. We can't deny that we're spiritual people. And one of the most difficult truths to convey, both in Jesus' day and our own, is that a biblical spirituality following Christ requires an incredible amount of self-denial, not self-approval. Even his closest disciples didn't get it, so we shouldn't feel too bad if it takes us a lifetime. So two things. Jesus talked about his upcoming death and what it would mean, just that it would actually happen. It took place in time and history. And then he described the kind of self-denial, not self-approval, that it takes to be his follower. The Apostle Peter that you heard about today in the Scripture reading is one of the most fascinating characters in all of Scripture and, I think, the New Testament. He is Jesus' number one disciple, his second-in-command, per se. He was his assistant All rabbis had kind of a top disciple. And yet at times, he seems like the most incapable buffoon. Right before this passage, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And Peter tells Jesus, I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the one that we've been promised since Abraham. And he will save all of Israel and bring God's kingdom to earth. And all this is right. Jesus is happy to see that Peter has made the good kind of confession. But all of this changes in one verse. In one verse, Jesus teaches them that he will suffer and die, but then he will also be resurrected. But Peter disagrees. Then Peter took Jesus aside, the one he just called the Messiah, who will save Israel and all the world from their sins, and began to explain to Jesus that the Messiah can't possibly suffer and die a humiliating death. It's always interesting to see what happens when someone tries to explain to Jesus what he just said. (laughs) Jesus replies to him, get behind me, Satan. He was not one to mince words. Now, obviously, Peter was not really Satan in disguise, but he is speaking the kind of deceptive things that Satan would speak and that Satan would have us believe. You see, here's the point. If Satan can undermine your belief that Jesus would have to suffer, die, be resurrected, and come again, then he has undermined the entire crux of the Christian faith. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostle says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied because we're just living a lie. We're fooling ourselves. What hope does death and resurrection of Jesus offer the believer? Well, if the resurrection is true, then the promise that God has plans for us after this life is also true. The Christian lives in this world with hope for the next. Everything that Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, of how the last shall be first, of how righteousness and evil will have nothing to do with each other, of how the gate to his kingdom will never have to be closed because all are now safe. All these things are true about the kingdom because the resurrection confirmed that he truly was the Son of God and that he has the authority to say them. 
we have to ask ourselves, why is the world so embittered against a system of faith that says its leader will one day return? Well, Scripture is clear in many places in Christ's own words in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, that when Christ returns, it is not the days of wine and roses. When Christ returns, it is to bring justice to a world that has turned its back on his divine law, the way he ordered the world at creation. Now, that's not easy for anyone, even believers, to to digest and make sense of. But we understand that Scripture knows several of God's characteristics. Yes, of course it talks about his love, his mercy, his grace, all of which those who believe have received plenty of. But it also speaks about his justice. Now, maybe not you, but I tense up when I hear about justice because I know what it means. The things that we've done will one day be dealt with because how could God withhold judgment on an evil world and still be called good? How can we say he's a God of mercy and love if he never deals with the problem of evil decisively in history? The death and resurrection of Jesus is the assurance that those who are called by God will also be resurrected when Christ returns with his kingdom. This isn't a new idea that Jesus made up either. It's found in the Old Testament as well. Just one example, Isaiah 26 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in dust, awake and sing for joy. It's a joyful thing that Christ will one day come and deal with justice and deal with the problem of evil. God's people have always looked forward to the day when God makes the whole world right by bringing about his kingdom. The resurrection of Christ, which points forward to the resurrection of all men, is the promise of justice being brought on this world. So when Peter is getting on Jesus about how a real Messiah doesn't suffer, how a real Messiah just takes charge and gets on with business, Jesus says, no, that's not how all this works out. Biblical spirituality, which looks forward to the coming kingdom of God, will always have an element of suffering to it. The real Messiah suffered to the point of death, but he could do that because there is hope beyond the grave. Jesus then goes on to make four statements about what it means to follow him. What does it mean to believe in a Messiah that would suffer and die for each of us? Now, in these four statements, he very plainly, Scripture says, lays out the sacrifice of following him. But in that sacrifice, we gain more than we would ever lose. First, he says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. God's economy is not ours. Only in his kingdom can we lose our life and the end result being that we find real life. How does that work? Jesus elsewhere refers to himself as living water and true bread. These are just allusions to the fact that he's offering real life, real sustenance. Knowing Jesus is knowing eternal life. It's the gift that he gives But we do have to lose our life to take up the life that Jesus Christ offers. We deny ourselves. Only the world thinks that we come to fully know ourselves by digging deeper and deeper inside of us. We have to find ourselves, as they say. This common sense or common nonsense the world shares shares leads to death. The only way to find yourself 
is to know God. It's also a guarantee that knowing Jesus will result in the loss of your own life. The things that you and I hold to and cling to so dearly, the idols that I've erected, the habits that I keep, all these will eventually fade away. But the promise is this. These things that offered you life, that has offered me life, will never supply it. The only one who can supply the life that you've lost is the one who gave up his own life only to regain it in his resurrection. Secondly, he asks two questions. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit a soul? And then he asks, for what can a man give in return for his soul? Now there is a lot through God's grace that this world has to offer, don't get me wrong. There are things that I love to do, places that I want to go to one day, but I don't have to worship them, I don't have to give them up either. God created this world, and to escape the good things he's blessed is to avoid his very goodness. But the hitch is this. You can go everywhere, you can try everything, and you can earn every dollar, but none of them will equal what your soul is worth. You will never buy back from God your own soul. The beauty in this is that that's how much you are worth to him. You will never buy it back. Nothing that you have to offer is good enough for God to take you out of his love and care. The flip side, and there's always a flip side, is that you also can't repay the damage you've done to your own life either. So, so, so you can't buy your own independence, but you also can't buy your own salvation. No amount of work can do away with my sin. I can accumulate everything and every experience that this world has to offer, many of them very, very good but it won't do away with the problem of my sin. Lastly, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We've been so accustomed to 90% of the people we know at least acknowledging Christian morality or Christian spirituality that it seems strange to talk about being ashamed of Jesus. Everyone loves Jesus. But listen to what Jesus says elsewhere. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. John 14. Thinking that Jesus is just all right is not obeying him. It's, it's a cheap version of Christian biblical spirituality. He's very clear in these passages in Mark that obeying him comes at a pretty steep price. The ones who are ashamed of him and his words are those who think, like Peter did, that following Jesus is going to be easy. We're going to ride on his coattails. He's going to come in like a, like a military leader and just take charge. It's the ones who think that no judgment is coming. The ones who would rather follow the downstream when following Jesus gets too hard. Now God is a God of justice, grace, and mercy. And God did deal with the problem of evil. When Christ went to the cross, he carried on his shoulders the judgment that God should have given each and one of us. Instead of you and I being held accountable for our sins, for our rebellion... God chose to place that burden on his son, 
instead. The gospel is this. Those who confess that Christ is Lord have had their judgment pronounced. Jesus Christ was innocent of all sin, and by dying in our place, we are pardoned for ours. No believer is innocent, but every believer is pardoned. And now you and I have the privilege of following in his footsteps. It should be a joy to walk behind a Savior who would take up his cross for you and me. On that cross, God dealt decisively with the problem of evil. Evil has already been defeated, though it still limps around for a short time. Jesus says that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The burden of picking up our cross pales in comparison to what our Savior experienced on, on his cross. It is a joy, it is a relief to pick up the burden that Christ offers each of us. So evil has been defeated, and now that we pick up our cross after the one who defeated it, we can do it with joy. We can do it happily. Because the cross he bore was infinitely heavier than you and I could ever have to bear, and now it's not going to be asked of us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful and humble that you allow us to gather here to worship in your name. We know that those who believe are no longer under judgment, that we can live with no fear. We can live knowing you. We ask that you bring comfort for those who have placed their faith in you, that have received you. And we ask that you convict the sin of those who have not yet given you their heart. We ask that as we leave this place, that we might be people of deep biblical faith, knowing that you love us and that you died to save us, and that in doing that, you now require of us to pick up our own cross. And yet our own cross is a relief because your cross dealt with the problem of evil, the problem of sin. And we can never thank you enough for what you have done for us. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.